you have a Bible, please open to Matthew chapter 16 this morning. Matthew chapter 16. Our theme for 2020 is follow Christ. If you were away last Sunday, be sure to go online, our website, or Facebook and, and catch up with that message. Follow Christ is our theme. Now, these verses in Matthew 16 are also found in Mark and Luke. Uh, Mark says he called the people unto him with his disciples also, Mark 8, 36. And so we know that Jesus repeated this same message several times to different crowds. Jesus explains how serious the commitment is to become a Christian. If you want to be forgiven, if you want to live forever with God in heaven, then sit up and listen closely to what he says. Though often misunderstood, though often misunder, uh, misinterpreted. I want everyone here in this auditorium today to know exactly what Jesus Christ is saying to us. Why? Why? Because our relationship with Christ determines our eternal destiny. And that is the most important thing about you. Would you please stand with me as I read from Matthew chapter 16. I'll be reading verses 24 to 26. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? May we pray. Our Father, today we come to you and we understand that we are eternal beings that will live forever somewhere, heaven or hell. And we thank you for your great love and your great salvation that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. And yet we have the responsibility to receive Christ to be born again into your family, to make that commitment to become a true and genuine follower of Christ. And I ask if there is anyone here today in these few moments together that they're not sure that heaven's their home, that they would get it settled and choose Christ today. For each Christian, help us to better understand what it means to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The disciples, they thought Jesus was the promised military Messiah who will come and set up his kingdom upon earth and rule all nations, Psalm 47, verse 3. I mean, they could feel it. They could taste it. If this man can speak a phrase and calm a raging storm, then it would be very easy to throw off the Roman power, defeat the Roman soldiers, and set up his kingdom. But here Jesus burst their bubble and all their hopes by saying, he will suffer, he will die, he will be raised again from the dead. I mean, it was so opposite of everything they believed that Peter speaks for them all and says, no, <laughs> no, Lord, uh, that is not going to happen. I'm not going to let that happen to you. It seems, sadly, there's a bit of Peter in all of us. Uh, we want things done our way. 
things done to our liking, to please ourselves, to follow our plans, to follow our desires. But the very moment Peter was tearing down what God was building up, Jesus rebuked Peter. And we find that in verse 23. Get thee behind me, Satan. Uh, Jesus, he says to Peter, Peter, Satan is speaking through you. You have just aligned yourself with our demonic spiritual enemy. Peter, you are more concerned about what you want than about what God wants. And so I, I, I'd like us to put ourselves in the disciples' sandals for a moment. Uh, they've been on a spiritual high. They've been eyewitnesses to some of the most amazing miracles in the history of the world that anyone has seen. And now with this news of his coming death, they've just gone from the highest of the highs, and he has brought them down to the lowest of the lows. Jesus teaches them there has to be a, there has to be a cross before a crown. There's going to be pain before there's gain. There's got to be suffering before there's going to be glory. And not only does Jesus say, I'm going to die. Oh, but by the way, if you want to follow me, there's a cross for you too. There's a cross for you too. They have to decide, do I really want to follow him? And then Jesus gives this invitation. Invitations to salvation are biblical. God the Father gives invitations in the Old Testament in Isaiah. Jesus gives invitations in the Gospels. Paul gives invitations in the Epistles. In the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit gives an invitation. Come, the Spirit says, come. Now many pastors, many writers, they, they mock churches like ours that invite people to become saved, that invite people to receive Christ as their Savior. I want you to know that doesn't bother me. I'm glad to stand on the Word of God. I'm glad to stand where God stands, and so should you. So Jesus gives the invitation. Look at verse 24. He says, if any man will come, there it is, come. If any man will come after me, invitation, open invitation. He doesn't say if you are Jewish, you can come. He doesn't say if you are good, you can come. He doesn't say if you are predestinated, you can come. He says anyone. That's me. <laughs> that's you. That's the 12. Uh, that's the, the crowd that Mark says were there listening to him. And Jesus is calling for a commitment. Now he's going to explain what that commitment requires. What does it require? And the answer is extreme sacrifice. Extreme sacrifice. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Now we have to understand this verse in the context that we find it. It is a salvation context. You say, how do we know that? Well, look with me at verse 26. This is about going to heaven. What is a man profited if he gain the whole world, lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And so we're talking about uh, going to heaven. It's an invitation. Jesus is inviting people to follow him so that they can be forgiven, so that they can go to heaven. He's explaining that to be one of his followers, it, it, it's going to require a full commitment not a half-hearted commitment. Now, the Bible does not teach that salvation comes by good works. The Bible does not teach the, that salvation comes by self-sacrifice. 
Not at all. No. Titus 3, 5. It is a free gift of God and cannot be earned by works. Romans 6, 23. So then what does it mean? Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Here's what it means. Number one, it means replace myself with Christ. Replace myself with Christ. To deny the word literally means to disown something. You disown it. What is Jesus asking us to disown? He's asking us to disown ourselves. Disown yourself. To deny myself is to put myself out of the picture, to put Christ in the place of myself. A great commentator of 100 years ago, Matthew Henry, said this, All the followers of Christ must learn to deny themselves. We must deny ourselves Absolutely. We must not admire even our own shadow. Uh, we must not uh, lean to our own understanding, nor seek our own things. We must deny ourselves for Christ, for his will, for his glory, and the service of his interest in the world. We must deny ourselves for our brethren and for their good. So what does it mean to deny yourself? It means, number one, replace myself with Christ. Number two, to renounce my ability to save myself. You see, once you recognize that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Savior, you have to make a decision. I mean, young people, old people, everyone in between, you make a decision, and that is to follow him or not. Once you believe that he died for you and rose again, you believe that. And then the question is, will you follow him? Will you follow him? In Luke chapter 18, two men came to the temple to pray. One a publican and one a Pharisee. The Pharisee said, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I do this and I do that. I, I pray, I fast. I tithe, I'm good. But then the tax collector came in. Uh, the outcast in Israel, they were despised. Well, why were they despised? I'll tell you why they were despised. Because they bought from the Romans taxing stations, polling stations. And so what they would do is, is they, were, they were paid to be able to collect taxes from the people, and then they would overcharge and so they would steal. It was legal stealing from the people. And the people hated them. They despised them. They're traitors. They're thieves. He comes into the temple, pounding his chest with sorrow and repentance, his head bowed, not even looking up. Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want you to see the difference. The Pharisee said, God, I need justice. Look what I've done. The publican said, God, I need mercy. Look what I've done. And Jesus said it was, it was the publican who went back to his house forgiven of all of his sins. Here's what the publican was saying. He was saying, I deny myself the right to enter heaven on my own merit, on the merit of my good works. God, I need your help. But the proud sinner refuses to deny himself. The proud sinner says, I want Christ and my pleasure. I want Christ and my sin. I want Christ and my possessions. But when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and its eternal penalty, you become so desperate for Christ that you'll give up anything and everything for him. 
And so what does it mean to deny yourself? It means to replace myself with Christ. It means to renounce my ability to save myself. And then thirdly, it means to relinquish my rights and desires. And this is, this is how we usually interpret the phrase. Uh, we jump to the application <clears throat> and we miss the interpretation. Relinquish means to voluntarily cease to keep or claim or give up. So denying yourself becomes, well, it becomes a way of life for the Christian. Now this is where it's going to get hard. This attitude of denying and turning from yourself, it, it's not just a one-time belief, a one-time choice or attitude or commitment that happens when you get saved. No, no. It becomes the new you. So denying yourself is the new lifestyle of the Christian. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you could picture this, like a tree that grows up to the sky, so its roots grow downward in the dirt. And so as you grow spiritually to higher spiritual knowledge, so our spiritual roots grow down deeper and deeper in humility. Now if you would do what I did, if you take your bulletin and put a star on this side and put a star on that side, because I want you to see something here. True spiritual knowledge leads you to a corresponding increase in humility, not pride. Would you say it with me? Here we go. True spiritual knowledge leads you to a corresponding increase in humility, not pride. And so the fruit of this, the, the evidence of this, is a greater concern for others and a less of a concern for ourselves. As we grow closer to Christ... We discover an ever-increasing unworthiness about ourselves. The closer you get to God's light, the more dirt you see on your soul. Uh, uh, unsaved people can't understand this. I mean, they do things, and, well, it's not a crime, so it must not be a sin. But no, no, the closer you get to God's light, the more dirt you see on your soul, and the discovery, the discovery of your personal wickedness gives you a greater and increasing love for God and gratitude for His mercy, His forgiveness, His grace to save your soul. So Jesus said, I'm asking you to deny yourself. Jesus said, I'm asking you to say no to your needs, no to your desires, no to your hopes, no to your ambitions, no to your dreams, no to your plans, and I want you to say yes to mine. After all, his plan is better than yours, isn't it? Isn't plans, God's plan better than the one that you could create? Uh, this is not about my satisfaction. This is about sacrificing for him and for his will. Okay, so there's the truth of the passage. Now let's go ahead and uh, apply, deny yourself to our lives, and let's see what it looks like. And so the application is going to be in, in salvation. The application is going to be in sanctification. That simply means spiritual growth. So deny yourself means denying your pride. You cannot save yourself. Deny pride equals salvation. Remember that? Not of works, lest any man should what? Boast. Because if you think you can get to heaven because you're good, your sacraments, your religion, your kindness, your gifts, uh, uh, your life, you got to deny yourself. You can't get to heaven without 
God doing all of it. And then once you become a Christian, once you are a Christian, denying yourself becomes a way of life. And so that's denying selfishness. So to become a Christian, you agree with God. You cannot save yourself by good works or baptism or sacraments. You denied yourself. You trusted Christ alone. You denied yourself. You're now a genuine Christian. But now as a child of God, you and I are con to continue in this new lifestyle of extreme sacrifice. And so as we apply this truth to our lives, it's going to look different for each one of us. I love that story in John chapter 21 when, when the Lord Jesus, he's been resurrected and he's with the disciples in Galilee and he, he says to Peter, he says, Peter, you're going to die a martyr's death. You're not going to die of old age. You're not going to die of sickness. Peter, you're going to die a martyr's death. Peter's thinking, okay, okay. And then he looks at the Lord and he looks at John and says, but what about John? What about John? And I, I love the Lord's answer. He says, if I keep John healthy and alive until I return, what is that to thee? You follow what? You follow me. You follow me. Uh, good advice. Good counsel. So let's get our eyes off of everyone else, what everyone else is doing, what God's plan is for them, and let's get our eyes on Jesus and let's just follow him fully and completely. Extreme sacrifice. 45 years ago, uh, Ron and Donna Bragg went to Senegal, Africa. I had the opportunity to serve with him at Baptist International Missions. He became the uh, African field director uh, for a couple of decades, and I was serving as a uh, board of trustee for about a 12 years, about 12 years down there in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, they went to Senegal, uh, Africa, 45 years ago. And whatever you think of a third world country, uh, Senegal is that and worse. Uh, Mrs. Bragg wrote this little book entitled "Not My Rights, But Christ's." A Missionary Wife and Mother's Journey Through Surrender. It, it's her story. It's her story of trials. It's her story of, of, of uh, denying herself. Now, her story is different than yours, and your story is going to be different than mine. But Jesus has called all of us to be willing to make the most extreme sacrifices to be able to follow him, to deny ourselves. Now, what Ron and Donna Bragg did back then still affects our missionaries today. And I, I've read a lot of stories uh, about the martyrs, uh, both in the Bible and in church history, and, and I could tell you about those stories of extreme sacrifice, but, but this is a couple, they're, they're like us, they're just one of us. And so, listen to how she made surrender after surrender to serve our Savior. Before being missionaries, they were content to be, in her words, conservative, worldly Christians. <laughs> Not a great description. Uh, living there in Arkansas, we we're just conservative, worldly Christians. And then God got a hold of their hearts, said, I want you to, I, I prompted them to become missionaries to Africa. And so they prepared and did exactly that. In chapter 4, uh, the title is, do I have, oh, oh, did I miss something here? Chapter 1. She writes in chapter 1, my rights. We hear much today on the subject of rights. Women's rights, abortion rights, gay rights, etc. As Christians, 
Where do we fit in concerning our rights? Do we have the right to go to the places we want, to dress the way we want, to use our money the way we want, to be entertained the way we want? Do we have the right to determine most of, our, most of life's choices without consulting uh, the Lord or His Word? Chapter 4, the title is, Do I Have the Right to What I Consider a Normal Standard of Living? Chapter 5, Do I Have the Right to the Ordinary Safeguards of Good Health? Chapter 7, Do I Have the Right to Privacy? Chapter 8, Do I Have the Right to My Own Time Schedule? Chapter 9, Do I Have the Right to Live with the People of My Choice? Chapter 10, Do I Have the Right to Be Free from Danger? She tells of small hardships and big hardships and how she would read God's word and God would give her a verse and help her to surrender that trial. Now, if you would look with me at uh, second to bottom paragraph on page three, and if you would underline this, as she denied herself, God would replace her upset with joy. And the reason I want you to underline it and the reason I will repeat it is because I want it for you too. As she denied herself, God would replace her upset with joy. Uh, she writes, In our first few weeks, we sat on boxes and ate our meals from a makeshift table and benches that my husband made out of crates. During the day, he would carry the benches out to the front of our home and share the Bible with anyone who would sit and listen. The house we lived in had a hall that ran through the middle of the house that was open at each end with no closures. And it took weeks to secure these openings. During that time, the bats would fly in and hang from the wires in the living room ceiling. The rats, the mice, the lizards would scurry through. All the pipes and wires were exposed. But I was praising the Lord that I didn't have to live in a tent. My mother used to say, Expect the worst and pray for the best. For 10 months, we had wind, sand, and temperatures reaching 120 degrees. But we were five minutes from a visit to the Atlantic Ocean. In our coastal city, by the, uh, the fishermen salted their catch of the day, laid it on the hot, out in the hot desert sun to rot and dry to preserve the fish. About 5 p.m. every single night, at 5 p.m., the winds coming off the ocean would pick up the smell and disperse it over the entire city. Along with the smell of rotting fish was the smell of urine. It was shocking to say the least to have adults and children uh, relieve themselves in public, which they still do to this day. But it was not wrong in their culture. There's no way I can describe the smell, but as the years passed, the new culture became a way of life and the horrible odors were hardly noticed. I chose not to let things bother me. I love that. I chose not to let things bother me because I wanted to reach them. Uh, one of our missionaries that 
uh, is in Senegal. After the first term, they were back for a missionary conference, and, and uh, we had the ladies' testimony time and the men's breakfast, and that afterward, everyone's leaving. And we're out here at the top of the Family Life Center hallway, and Jody was talking to Julie, and, and Julie was looking towards the playground, and Jody's looking out, and their little boy, Tristan, he's probably three or four, probably four, and uh, he saw a great and he needed to do his business and zip and uh, so as Jody's watching this her eyes got big and her mouth dropped open and, and the missionary is talking to Jody and she kind of looks ah and she, she runs out and says we're not in Senegal we're in America we don't do that here and, and uh, so that's just, uh, just that's their culture in our home she wrote Senegalese ladies they would spit out little pieces of wood on my floor as they picked their teeth the babies would wet on my carpet because they did not wear diapers. If I had gotten bent out of shape because my rugs were soiled by the very people to whom we had come to share Christ, then the rugs have to go so the floors could be mopped. I needed to accept their culture. She goes on to tell of disease and sickness and accidents and robbery, uh, men coming into their home while they were asleep at night, even a time of fighting and murder on their street between different ethnic groups uh, made national, international news. Trips to the hospital several times meant you had to sanitize the bed, you had to sanitize the room, you had to bring your own sheets, you had to fight not just hundreds of flies, you had to fight off thousands of flies when you went to the hospital. You see, it never gets cold enough to kill the flies, and so they just keep multiplying and multiplying. And so at home, we made a game of how many flies we could kill with one swat. I won by getting eight at once, she said. Third world living in every way. At any point in time, she could have said, enough, enough, I'm done. I'm taking my five kids and I'm going home to America. But she didn't. She denied herself. God gave her a verse. She gave it to God. And then God gave her joy. God gave her peace. God gave her happiness. And for 16 years they served until her husband did such a good job, Baptist International Mission said, come, please be our African director over all the missionaries on the continent. Because she stayed, they bought property that today, in 2020, Josh and Julie Mead now use. And they built uh, uh, a church and an outreach center there and about a dozen from our church went there two years ago and it was quite the scene when they were on top of this building and they made a circle together and they were praying and as they were praying to the living God in heaven uh, that that mosque had that five times a day that, that ritualistic prayer that, that just is blasted out and it was like in the spiritual darkness 97% Muslim and the light of Jesus Christ is shining, piercing the darkness. I'm glad Mrs. Bragg didn't give up. I'm glad she stayed. I'm glad they bought that property. I'm glad that Josh and Julie now have it, and they have their, their Christian center there. And now along with the national Josh, Josh is, is reaching out to thousands of Muslims as they do YouTube posts on the Bible and the gospel each week. 
It's going across the nation. And so that well in Gambia is because of this man sending a partner missionary and a national to do that well and to do a new church. And so the next time you or I are tempted to complain and gripe and grumble about anything, I want to ask you to do this. I want you to get on Facebook and go to Julie Mead. I want you to take 10 minutes to scroll through there what it's like to live today in Senegal in 2020. I, I, I should have I played it for you, but one that I found was this post, and for 12 hours, she shows this group of people, and they're just banging drums, they're just banging drums, and it's noisy, and they're celebrating a marriage, and it went on for 12 hours. And when you watch that, you see they keep denying themselves, and God keeps giving them joy and a smile, and they're honored to be there to partner with us to serve Jesus Christ to reach the people of Senegal. Chapter 11, do I have any rights? On the mission field, it is not the hardships, the lack of comforts, and the roughness of life that makes the missionary cringe and falter. It is something far less romantic and far more real. She writes, we missionaries... We missionaries have to give up having our own way. We must learn to give up having any rights. In the words of Jesus, she says, to deny himself. We just have to give up ourselves, she writes. But then she concludes with this great truth. It's not a question, it's a statement. Chapter 12, I have the right to Christ. All that he takes, I will give. All that he gives, will I take. He my only right, I have full right to him. Oh, may he have full right to me. Okay, now it's time to apply what we have learned, even if it's hard. I want you to give some deep thought to how you can begin sacrificing yourself denying yourself, denying what you want to better serve Christ. Think of what is causing you conflicts right now. What is causing you upset right now? Disappointment, disagreement, fights, anxiety, and worry. Can you pull one? Can you think of one? Now you have that in your mind. Now ask God to help you to deny yourself, to deny your rights, to deny your desires, to deny demanding your way, and deny what you want. So here's how we apply it. Uh, I want you to choose two areas to begin denying yourself what you want in your life. In your life. Pleasures, entertainment, leisure, finances. It's going to be different for all of us. It could be some corrupting music that you keep listening to. It could be some wicked movies that you keep watching. It could be overspending. It could be hours of surfing on the net. It could be hours of playing video games. It could be endless TV shows, whatever it is. If you lack joy and peace in your life, try denying yourself. If you lack joy and peace at home, at home, with your family, your spouse, your kids, your parents. Deny yourself 
the right to be short-tempered. Deny yourself the right to be sarcastic. Deny yourself the right to yell, to name-call. Deny yourself the right of not talking to your family members respectfully, no matter what their age. If you are upset with a family member, try denying yourself. Choose two areas to begin denying what you want at church, with your friends and your pastors and others. Deny yourself the right to become easily offended by what someone said, by what someone did. Deny yourself the right that you become upset over a petty preference, over a petty opinion. If you are disgruntled at church, try denying yourself. Here's one. Choose two areas to begin denying yourself at work, with coworkers, with the boss, with employees. Deny yourself when your boss asks you to do something you don't like to do. Deny yourself the right when you have a coworker that, I mean, it feels like sandpaper every time he or she talks, just grates on you. Or you have an employee that just rolls their eyes every time you ask them to do something. If you are in conflict with people at work, try denying yourself. Friends, friends, life is too short to stay upset. Life is too short to hold grudges. Life is too short to sweat the small stuff. Life is too short to keep being angry. So take a deep breath. Remember how gracious God is to you for not giving you what you deserve for all the bad things you've done. Then pray for God to give you the grace, the same grace that he showed you, and that you would begin to show that kindness to others, even if others disagree with you. That's denying yourself. That's letting Christ live through you. And so I prayed, and I, I asked God to show me how we can let this truth dominate our hearts, our minds, our lives. And so here is the thought that he gave me. Begin taking Christ and what he wants way more serious. Begin taking yourself and what you want way less serious. And what will happen? I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen. Look in your notes. This is, this is what will happen. Your load will be lighter. Your joy will be greater. Your scowl will turn into a smile. It, it doesn't make sense, does it? Like, deny yourself. You think, I've got to deny myself. It's going to be hard. But it's the opposite. When you deny yourself, God's going to give you joy. He's going to give you his grace. He's going to give you a peace and happiness. Life's too short to be grumpy all the time. Do I get an amen for that? Amen. Life's too short to be grumpy all the time. Amen. I can say this all day. Life's too short to be grumpy all the time. Amen. All right, let's say it together. Life's too short to be grumpy all the time. Amen. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> I think you got the message. So follow Christ. The last question, are you willing to put Christ and others first?
ahead of yourself. Well, that's, that's denying yourself, and it's a joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for our Savior who is the Son of God, who is the Lord of glory, who gave his all and denied himself so that we can be forgiven and go to heaven. And now with their heads bowed or eyes closed, you'd say, Pastor, I, I, I know that I'm going to heaven when I die. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm trusting in Christ alone. Nothing that I can do, my good works, my baptism, my religious merit, I'm trusting in Christ alone. I know there was a time in my life where I gave my life to Christ. And he saved me. He gave me his Holy Spirit. I know that heaven's my home. If you have that assurance, would you simply raise your hand all over this congregation? God bless you. You may put your hands down. You hear today, you say, Pastor, you know, I think I'd go to heaven. I, I hope I'd go to heaven, but I'm not sure. I have doubts. God brought you here today to take away your doubts. God gives the invitation to you. Come to me. Receive me. Believe on me. Trust me. It's not about joining a church. It's not about getting baptized. It's about understanding you can't go to heaven with your sin. Only Jesus can forgive your sin. And the way your sins are forgiven is for you to trust and believe that Jesus died for you and rose again. And so right now where you're seated, if you'd like to respond to this invitation from God and say yes, yes to Christ, right where you're seated, you can pray from your heart sincerely. You can pray silently. God will hear the prayer of your heart. Would you pray with me right now? You'd say, Pastor, I, I want this salvation. I want this forgiveness. I want to know that heaven's my home. Then pray with me right now, right where you're seated. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and become my Lord and Savior. Please save me today. Our heads bowed, our eyes closed. If you just pray with me, I want to pray for you today. I want to pray for you. Would you simply raise your hand and say, yes, Pastor, I just pray with you. Anyone at all, just hold your hand up high for a moment. I prayed to receive Christ as my Savior. Now, Christian, may I ask you, are you really a follower of Christ? Are you taking serious this commitment to become an extreme sacrificer for your Savior, to put aside things so that you might better follow Jesus? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. So, Father, work in our hearts in this invitation time, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand, let's all stand together. We'll sing a song of invitation. The song we're going to sing is, it's Have Thine Own Way, Lord, Have Thine Own Way. That's just another way of saying, uh, deny yourself. God, I want you to have your way in my life. Let's sing 
as unto the Lord. Chapter 17 this evening, uh, we will have at least two Sunday nights of questions and answers tonight and then again in two weeks. So here's the first question, and that is why? Why ask Bible questions? Well, uh, that's a good question. I think we have a slide for that if you want to advance that there. Why ask Bible questions? Good question. What are we doing tonight? Is it, a, is, it, is it biblical? Is it a biblical thing to do? Is it a good thing to do? Why ask questions? What's the purpose of asking questions? Well, the purpose is to be able to get answers. We use the Bible to get the right answers. We use the Bible to get the truth. And so teachers ask questions to students, and we call that what? Tests. Uh, tests. Police ask questions to criminals, and we call that interrogations. Uh, lawyers ask questions to defendants, and they're supposed to be getting justice. Uh, when people ask honest questions to God, when they ask honest questions to God, when they seek the truth about God, He always delivers. He always delivers. He always turns on the light. The New Testament church is the pillar and ground of the truth of God. We are to teach the truth. We are to preach the truth. We are to share the truth. We are to live the truth. To do that, you've got to know and understand the truth. So would you please stand with me as I read from Paul's second missionary journey in the book of Acts. And we're going to see that he did... 2,000 years ago, exactly what we're doing tonight. Bible questions and answers. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days he reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and of devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, then gathered a company, and set all the city in an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. Drop down to verse 17, as he continues on his missionary journey. Uh, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews, and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them, that met with him. Drop down to chapter 18, verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Uh, may we pray together. Father, thank you that we have in our hands tonight uh, the holy word of God. Thank you that you have written it through inspiration. You have preserved it through the centuries. And what we have tonight are the holy scriptures, the word of God in our hand. But, Father, we pray that uh, the writer of the Scriptures, the Spirit of God, that he would guide us into truth and understanding, help us 
to be ready to give an answer to every man that asks of the hope that we have in our hearts. Help us to be able to plant seeds and plow and water and bring forth others to Christ. Now, Father, help us to be able to uh, be quick, to be able to give you praise for the truth that we have and be able to believe and to obey and to share with others. I pray if there be one that knows not Christ, I pray tonight the Spirit of God would come upon them, convict them, draw them to yourself in salvation, strengthen each Christian, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Question and answers. Why study God's Word? Well, we study God's Word because God commands us to study His Word. 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. That is, cut it straight. Uh, you've heard people say, oh, well, uh, everybody has their own interpretation. Well, they might have their own interpretation, but that's wrong. Uh, God uh, meant what he said. He said what he meant. And so what God wrote is there is an interpretation that is correct, that is accurate, that is true. And so we believe in the uh, literal, historical, grammatical understanding of the Scripture. Now, there might be a Scripture that has a couple of uh, interpretations, uh, like with a prophecy about Christ, first coming, second coming. Uh, there's many applications, uh, but if you are in a Bible study at work or in in the neighborhood, and people say, well, you know, I feel this, and I feel that. Well, I don't care what you feel. What does God say? Uh, because God wrote it, and, he me and his words mean something. And that's why we, we, uh, we use our King James Version of the Bible, because of the accuracy of the uh, 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 translation from Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And so what we have is, we have words that were inspired by God and were commanded to study. And you say, but I don't understand it. Well, that's why you got to work at it. Uh, you got to study uh, to understand God's truth. And so why study God's word? God commands it uh, us to study. Number two, it will help us. It will help us. You want to be happy? Jesus said, blessed or happy are they that hear the word of God and keep it, that follow it, that obey it. You want to be happy? Then study God's word. Uh, why are we to, to uh, study it? It'll help us with happiness. It'll help us with success. Meditate on the word of God, Joshua 1.8. Uh, if you want victory over sin, memorize it, meditate upon it. Psalm 119, 9-11, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Uh, God says that, that, that a young man, uh, he'll wander uh, from, from truth and righteousness unless he focuses and studies and memorizes and meditates on the truth of God. Uh, it will help us. If you want to know truth, John 17, 17, thy word is truth. One more, and that is we can help others. We can help others. You study God's word, and God is going to fill you up so you can help others. Peter said, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks of that hope you have in your heart. 1 Peter 3.15. Twice God says to his church family, admonish one another. Uh, Romans 15.4, uh, uh, Colossians 3.16. Admonish means to put in mind uh, God's truth to others. And so you want to be a good friend? Tell your friend what God says. Do it, speak the truth in love, uh, but be able to help them to follow Jesus Christ. So this is what Paul is doing on his missionary journey. He is preaching, he is teaching, he is answering questions, he is baptizing new converts, he's training pastors, he's starting churches, and that's what a missionary does. A New Testament missionary starts churches and assists 
in church planning. Now, Paul had a regular system of starting churches. First, he would uh, go to the Jews, and he, uh, being a Jew, uh, though he's an apostle to the Gentile, he'd go, and he'd go into the synagogue, and they had opportunity to be able to read Scripture and to be able to preach sermons and teach, and he would do that. And the Bible says in most every setting, some people got saved. In most every setting, some people got mad, and they would take him and literally throw him out the front door. In, in Corinth, it was quite the event uh, that, uh, that he was thrown out, and the Bible says that he went right hard next door to the synagogue. And so Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, comes and, and, and says, this, this, this man is upsetting our traditions. And the ruler there in Corinth said, he'll have none of it, and they beat the accuser. They beat Sosthenes. But as you read First and Second Corinthians, you find out Paul writes to Sosthenes, our brother. So between the word of God and the beating, he came to Christ. And, uh, and they had to get another ruler of the synagogue. Uh, so Paul would go to the synagogue. They'd throw him out. He'd start a church. He'd teach the word of God. And this is what he did. Verse 2, he reasoned. Verse 17, he disputed. Chapter 18, verse 4, he reasoned and persuaded. Now the word for reason and dispute, it's the same word it's the Greek word, the elogamai. Now, I don't enjoy giving Greek words to you unless you can, can relate to it in the English language. The elogamai, what does it sound like? It sounds like a dialogue, a dialogue. So he was dialoguing with them. It's a conversation, it's questions, it's answers, it's reasoning, it's thinking, it's discussing, it's feedback. So in the next slide, you see the goal of questions and answers is to be able to learn God's word better. Uh, the goal of questions and answers is to learn how to answer your own questions. The goal of questions and answers is to create a desire for your own personal Bible study. And the best way to do that is to start reading. Start reading. Get a good Bible study uh, 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 study Bible uh, and then you look and say okay who is the author uh, who is the audience Matthew Mark Luke and John different author, authors different uh, audiences and so you begin to discover the context and so as you go through your study Bible read the notes at the bottom most of them are accurate, but not always. And that's why you got to check with your pastors, all right? Uh, but you study uh, the Bible. You learn what God is saying. Now, the cardinal rule of Bible interpretation is this. Interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. Interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. And so we go to the passages that God has clearly stated about himself, about salvation, about heaven, about hell, about life, and then when you have those rock-solid teachings, doctrines, then if you find a passage and you're not quite sure what it means, it might be a little obscure, you don't come up with a new doctrine or a new teaching. No, no, you interpret what you might not understand in light of what you do understand. God does not contradict himself. Any apparent contradictions are opportunities for us to study and to reconcile what only appears to be a contradiction on the surface. Now, when we come to the why questions, when we come to the what if questions, and we all have them, 
They are very difficult to answer. And I will refer you to Deuteronomy 29, 29. Can you quote it? The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Uh, I can't tell you how many people over the decades, uh, they say, well, uh, I, I can't figure this out, or I don't understand, so I don't agree with this, uh, therefore I'm just not going to go to church, or I'm not going to witness, or I'm not going to do this or that. That's a cop-out. God says, I'm not telling you everything, but what I, what I have told you, I make you responsible for believing it, obeying it, following it, and sharing it. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So we're not going to have answers to all of our questions yet. When we get to heaven, all the questions will be answered at that time. So there are why questions. There are what if questions. Uh, why does God allow sin? What if Adam didn't eat the fruit? So the whys and the what-if questions, uh, we can join others for the last 2,000 years, and we can kind of give our best answer, but we just don't know. I can't tell you how many hours uh, with all three of my sons we've had these what-if questions, and you talk, and you think, and you, well, what if this happened, what if that happened? We just, we just don't have all of those answers of the whys and the what-ifs. So let's get started. And so some questions have been asked to me direct since I've announced the series, and some came in by way of the connection card. Uh, does all of the Bible apply to me? Is the Old Testament for me? So we're going to jump around tonight to get some of the answers, so let's go ahead and turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. How many times have you heard people say, oh, that's the Old Testament, that doesn't apply to me. Matthew chapter 5, Verse 17, almost as if the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Oh, the God of the Old Testament's a God of, of judgment, and he's harsh and stern. The God of the New Testament is a God of love and kindness and mercy. Well, as we prayed this morning in the psalm, God of the Old Testament is full of compassion, full of love, full of mercy and grace. It is the same God. So how does this all work together? Matthew chapter 5 Greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew 5, 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but what? To fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Jesus did not come to set aside Old Testament law. Jesus came to fulfill Old Testament law and to fulfill all of it. The Bible is not out of date. The Bible is up to date. It's the culture that is out of whack with what God says not God's word, out of whack with what's going on. Anytime the culture contradicts the Bible, the culture, the people, the media, the reverends, the politicians, they contradict the Bible, they're wrong. And God is right. Let God be true, every man a liar. 
Jesus did not set aside the Old Testament. He fulfilled it. Why? God wrote it. Uh, he is the author of the Old Testament. So what does the word law refer to when you read it in the New Testament? Well, let me give you several possibilities, and the context will dictate the interpretation of the word law. So the law uh, can refer to the Ten Commandments. We find those in Exodus 20. The law can refer to the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is Penta five, Pentagon five sides. The Pentateuch is the first five books of our Bible uh, written by Moses. Uh, the law can refer to the whole Old Testament, and as it does here, because when you put the words law and prophets together, that's the entire Old Testament. And the law can also refer to the oral traditions written by the rabbis. And, and that's, that's wrong. That's not God's law. Silly and insignificant things, and Jesus opposed them. So when they say that Jesus opposed the law, what they were saying is he opposed these oral, silly traditions, but he wasn't opposing the truth of God, which he wrote. After his resurrection... You remember, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, resurrected body. He's walking with two disciples. What does he do? He opens the Bible and explains to them all those things, beginning from, from Genesis and the writings of Moses all the way down through the prophets, and that he is the fulfillment of the law. The Old Testament points to Christ. So let me give you three parts of the law of God, and now we can answer the question that was given. Uh, there are three types of law. There's moral law, and that is, that is uh, the Ten Commandments. That's for all men, uh, all times on this earth. Judicial law, you'll find in the Old Testament, and that is just for Israel and how they're to operate. There is ceremonial law, and that's also just for Israel for the worship of God. So the moral law is based on the Ten Commandments and God is not changing his mind. Not the Ten Suggestions, Ten Commandments. And that's rock solid and we need to be able to, to follow that. Jesus didn't abolish it. In fact, he, he, he uh, uh, elevated it. Uh, don't, uh, uh, don't kill. I say don't hate. Don't commit adultery. Uh, don't lust. And so you see he elevated it. The uh, moral law, he didn't do away with it. And so that's moral law, judicial law. It told the Jews how to function as a nation. It governed their behavior. It made them, it made them different from the nations around them. Uh, there are laws you will read about. If you're going to build a house, you have to put a battlement. You know what a battlement is? Battlements, it's, it's a wall. So you're on top of the house, you can't, you can't fall off. If you have an ox... Uh, uh, an animal and it, it, uh, it gores people uh, you have responsibility to be able to protect uh, people in your community and if you don't and it gores someone and, and uh, cripples them or kills them then that consequence comes back onto you an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth uh, so, so this judicial law, it would be good for our legislatures and our judges to study Old Testament law, to apply it uh, to modern-day civilization, to have proper and just laws. And then there is ceremonial law. It told them how to worship in their temple. And there were times Old Testament Jews broke moral law, they broke judicial law, they broke ceremonial law, and they suffered uh, great consequences uh, for what they did. And so if, 
If much of the Old Testament was just for Israel, why do we read it? Does it not apply to us? Let me give you some references. You can just jot them down. I'll read them to you. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime, Old Testament, were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. If you ever hear anybody on the radio say, you, you don't need to read the Old Testament, you don't need to study the Old Testament, turn them off. God says in the New Testament, the Old Testament was written for our learning, our understanding. You find the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Galatians 3.24 is the other reference. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Have you ever met anyone who kept the Ten Commandments perfectly? Only Jesus. I remember the first, uh, uh, first few months we started the church and, and a man visited. He was uh, from Japan. And so I went out to visit him. He lived in the Valley Forge Towers. And, and uh, so uh, buzzed, he buzzed me in. And we sat down there and asked him about going to heaven. And, and uh, when I got to that question about, about the gospel, everyone's a sinner, he said, no. I said, no, no, like everybody sins. All have sinned, not me. And this is my first experience with someone who's thinking he's never sinned. And so I'm going through different things, and, and uh, uh, I think I got him on that one, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness. <laughs> you can't tell a lie. And every time you say, I've never sinned, you just told a lie, <laughs> you know? You need, to, you need a Savior. You need to be saved. Uh, the law shows us, it's like a, looking at a mirror, and you see the dirt on your face. And the law shows us we have dirt on our soul sin and only jesus can wash away that sin and so the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to christ it's not bad it's not a bad thing but it cannot save us it can show us we are sinners but it cannot save us so yes the old testament is for us but no we do not apply the ceremonial and the judicial law we're not under binding laws uh, precepts that the Jewish people were under and are still under. Next question. Why? Why did God allow sin? You know, there's not an answer in the Bible for this. We don't know exactly why he allowed sin, but we do know this. He allowed it and all the consequences that go with it. Every heartache and hardship, every suffering you've ever had goes back to this allowance of sin. He didn't cause it, but he allowed it. And so we can only speculate, we can only guess. Uh, theologians have come up with a word to describe this. It's called the problem of theodicy. Theodicy. Uh, why did God permit evil? So here's a thought to consider. Uh, he allowed it so he can destroy it. He allowed it so he can destroy it. If there's a right... Uh, there's a left. If there's an up, there's a down. If there's an in, there's an out. If there's a good, then there must be an, a bad. If there was goodness, and there was in eternity past, and God was good and holy and just, if there was goodness, then there was always the potential for evil. And maybe God allowed evil to exist in order to ultimately destroy it so that it could no longer exist again. And that's what heaven is all about.
no sin, no consequences of sin, no pain, no sorrow, no tears. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And so what's going to happen is the next prophetic event is the rapture. The Christians are taken out of the world. The Bible says that uh, he who restrains, uh, he who lets will, will now let. The restrainer, the Holy Spirit, is going to be taken out of the way, and all hell will break loose, meaning God will allow Satan uh, to actually indwell an individual man who will be the ruler of the European Union in Europe. He could be alive today. He'll become the ruler of the 10 European Nation Confederation, the revived Roman Empire. He'll then attempt to conquer the world. And what we're going to find when Satan's running his world, it's not going to work. It's going to fall apart. Uh, every uh, kingdom that is divided cannot stand. And then you've got wars that are going to go on in the Middle East, and this begins to fall apart. Jesus Christ comes back at the Battle of, Battle of Armageddon, uh, destroys all outward rebellion, and the, the millennial kingdom begins with only believers who were saved in the tribulation time. But you know, within a few hours, there's going to be people that are going to be born. And the lifespan will now extend as it did before the flood. People will live hundreds of years. Uh, and the Bible says at the end of the 1,000-year reign of Christ, there is one final rebellion, the battle of Gog and Magog. Jesus literally, physically ruling from the throne of Jerusalem, ruling as King of kings and Lord of lords. And there's going to be so many people that are born in that 1,000-year span. People will get saved, and yet there's going to be some rebels in their heart. And Satan is loosed out of that pit. When he is loosed out of that pit, he inspires one final rebellion, and you can read the end of the story. The Bible says fire comes down from heaven and destroys the, the evil followers of Satan at the battle of Gog and Magog, and that is the end that is the end of evil. And so it started with Satan when he fell. One-third of the angels fell with him. And then it came into the human race when Eve was deceived and Adam made a determined uh, choice uh, and he brought sin into the world. So why did God allow sin? We'll get the complete answer when we get to heaven. Uh, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? <clears throat> Can a Christian talk to demons? You know, God warns us to stay away from the occult and astrology and numerology and palm reading. That's, that's all witchcraft-related. There's no good magic and, and uh, bad magic, white magic and dark magic. It's all bad. Anything related with demons is bad. It's evil, and we are not to be a part of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Uh, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple, means house, the temple of God, the house of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with the price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Uh, a person can be demon-possessed. There are people demon-possessed in our country. Uh, it shows up in different ways in different countries. Uh, but the, uh, the Satan and his demonic host can oppress and possess people. But when a person gets saved, the demon goes out and the Holy Spirit of God comes in. And there's no way that the Holy Spirit of God and a demonic 
being can inhabit the same body at the same time. And since we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians 1.13, Ephesians 4.30, we can be confident. When you get saved, you can never be demon-possessed. Now, can you be demon-oppressed? Can you be influenced? Yes, if you make bad decisions, if you listen to the wrong music, if you watch the wrong things, if you read the wrong things, if you go to the wrong places, there can be uh, demonic, satanic oppression and influence upon your life. Stay away from it. Stay away from it. Stay away from it. Romans uh, chapter 8 as well uh, teaches us, Romans 8 verse 9, that our body uh, has the Spirit of God. Uh, one of our ladies, Janice Boldu, she came to Jody and I, and she said, you know, I just, I just, I get these thoughts. I get these thoughts sometimes when I'm just around the house or when I'm praying, and I just know it's not from God. And uh, I know it's, uh, it's from the devil. And this is, she said, this is what I pray. Dear Jesus, Satan is knocking at the door. Would you please go answer? <laughs> <laughs> Satan's knocking at the door. Would you please go answer? You need to be leery of books and podcasts and radio and TV preachers who talk to the devil. Who talk to the devil. Oh, Satan, I rebuke thee. Wasn't Michael the archangel said, the Lord rebuked thee as they disputed over the body of Moses. You say, what in the world was that all about? Well, uh, Moses lived a very long life, and God said, okay, it's time for you to die. You can't go in the promised land. So you go up on top of the mountain, and he died. So his body's there, which means he's not buried, right? Because he's by himself, and you can't bury yourself. I guess you could, but he didn't. All right, so his body's up there. And, and so now we learn in the New Testament that Satan wanted to take that body and probably use it as, as an idol. As an idol. You know, people worship the bones of Moses. And Michael was sent from God to battle Satan and said no. So we, we don't need to get into conversations with Satan. We put on the spiritual armor, we resist the devil, uh, but we talk to God, uh, not to the devil. Where do little children go when they die? I was asked this uh, just a week ago. Where do little children go when they die? If you would, please, and I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to this passage, 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. The story is of David. We'll be getting to it in a future Sunday night. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, King David has, has uh, committed the sin of adultery. Uriah dies in battle at his order. He marries Bathsheba. She has a baby. And in chastisement, in, God gives David a spanking and the baby is sick for seven days. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, I'd like you to mark these verses in your Bible. Dog ear the page so you might be able to find them. And so they bring the news. He's been fasting. He's been praying. Verse 21. Uh, then said his servants unto him. Let's see, let me back up. Uh, verse 19. But when David saw that his servants whispered, because the child, the baby had died, the seven-day-old baby died, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, 
Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house, and when he, when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was yet alive, but when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can, be, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Though the scriptures do not have a lot to say about where little children go when they die, I want to give you some scriptures and some things to be able to think about. This baby is a week old. David believed that he would see his child again in heaven. Some misinterpret and say, oh, well, he'll see his child in death. I don't believe that God is going to damn an individual to hell that has no capacity to make a choice. It does not fit the character of God's love and mercy to do that. In the New Testament, Jesus said, let the little children come unto me, Mark 10, 14. Uh, Jesus affirmed what David knew in his heart. When a little child dies, that little child is taken into the arms of God. God does recognize an age of accountability. You find it in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 34 to 39. You find it in Jonah chapter 4. Remember in Jonah? Uh, Jonah uh, said, I'm not going to go to that city. He gets in the boat, swallowed by the great fish, gets spit out after his prayer of repentance, goes, he preaches, and, and Nineveh repents and turns to God. Jonah's upset because Israel's enemy is now saved. And so he goes outside, and he sits. He's waiting. Well, maybe God will change his mind. Maybe God will judge the city. As he's waiting, a gourd, a gourd grows up, big gourd, and gives him shade from the heat. And, ah, oh, he likes that. But then God prepared a gourd. God prepared a worm. And the worm uh, ate the, uh, the base of that. The thing dies. And Mo, uh, Jonah's mad. He's mad. And God says, Jonah, grow up. Grow up. You're upset over a gourd that you didn't plant, you didn't grow. You're upset about that? And this whole city has come to me, and you want me to destroy it? God says, what about the children that cannot discern their right hand from their left hand? Age of accountability. And he says, what about the cattle? <laughs> don't, don't you care about the cattle? <laughs> well, uh, we don't have it recorded, but I believe Jonah got the message because he wrote the book of Jonah. And he did come to his spiritual senses. So there is an age of accountability. A baby or a mentally impaired uh, child or adult are not accountable. Only when through growth and maturity their minds come to the place where they clearly understand that they willfully, knowingly, purposefully sin against God will he hold them accountable. If you have the books opened in heaven for God to be a righteous judge, there's going to be no accounting of sin for a baby that dies of abortion, a baby that dies of miscarriage, a baby that dies of SIDS, uh, sudden infant death syndrome, or an accident. 
There's no accounting. God is righteous, and he's, the books are open, Revelation chapter 20. There's no record of sins upon this person. I have a book here entitled Safe in the Arms of God by Dr. John MacArthur. He has pastored the same church for 50 years. He's now at the age of 80. They had big celebrations this year. He said, uh, he, he uh, runs the Master's College as well, and he said, we keep having these celebrations. They keep saying these good things about me. It's like I died, but then I keep coming back. And so, uh, uh, but he wrote this book many years ago. Uh, let me give you some of the chapter titles. We have several copies if you want to purchase, or if you know of someone who's been through this experience, be a great witnessing tool and comfort to them. Here are the, the, the titles. Uh, Safe in the Arms of God. Where is my child? What can we say with certainty to those with empty arms, to the parents? How does God regard children? What if my child is not among the elect? Will I see my child again? What is my child's life like in heaven? What did my child ha why did my child have to die? Why question. How should we minister to those who are grieving? And then a prayer at the end. Uh, he writes under the chapter, What if my child is not among the elect? A sovereign work of Jesus Christ. Let me bring this to a summary point. There's no place in Scripture in which a person suffers the judgment of damnation on the basis of anything other than sinful deeds, including the sinful deed of disbelief, a conscious, willful, intentional choice to disbelieve. Furthermore, God does not charge people with sins until they are committed. Salvation is completely by grace apart from works. Damnation is completely by works apart from grace. In no place does Scripture teach infant damnation. Do you know that it was Constantine who demanded his sick baby to be baptized? thinking that baptism would wash away sins in the 4th century. And from that time to this, me and you and many of your relatives baptize infants, and now we have, we have preachers on the radio who say, you know, it doesn't matter how you get baptized. You want to baptize the baby, it's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. It's a man-made doctrine that's not found in the Word of God. And it's there into churches to be able to convince people that their babies will not go to limbo until they deleted limbo about five years ago. Uh, so damnation is completely by works apart from grace. In no place does Scripture teach infant damnation. Rather, every biblical reference, whether oblique or direct, to the issue of infants and children who die gives us reason to believe that they go immediately into the eternal presence of God. I cannot help but conclude that our Lord graciously and freely receives all those who die in infancy, not on the basis of their innocence or their worthiness, but by His grace made, through, made theirs through the atonement He purchased on the cross." These little ones experience salvation grounded in absolute sovereignty and comprehensive grace. Yes, children are sinners by nature. Babies are not without a sin nature. They are, however, without sin deeds. Do you understand the difference? 
They are without sin deeds. Yes, children are in need of a Savior. Yes, God has provided a Savior for them, Jesus Christ. Yes, all children who die before they reach a state of moral awareness and culpability in which they understand their sin and corruption so that their sins are deliberate are graciously saved eternally by God through the work of Jesus Christ. They are counted as elect by sovereign choice because they are innocent of willful sin, rebellion, and unbelief by which works they would be justly condemned to eternal punishment. If you have followed thoughtfully all the scripture, you know your child who died prior to birth, at birth, or is a child too young to grasp the distinction between good and evil is indeed safe in the arms of God, eternally secure in his love and grace. That is exactly what I believe. That is exactly what I believe the Bible teaches. Back to the passage here. Uh, David prayed. The baby died. And, and uh, David clearly cherished this little child. Even though he knew his son had been conceived in sin, he loved him and he wanted him to live. He fasted and prayed intensely for his fragile life. Like us, David had strong hopes that the Lord would graciously relent and allow the child to live. But he had no assurance that God would do so. Here's the key to the change in David. He ceased his mourning after the baby died. He felt no further reason to fast and pray because his sorrow was instantly and completely replaced by hope. He declared, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. In spite of his sins, David was a man of God, and his theology was sound. He was a believer. He was chastened, and he was forgiven. He was God's child, so we know that David certainly wasn't referring to hell when he said, I shall go to be with him. Uh, there are those who say, well, what David meant was that they lied together in the same burial place in the field. How absurd. How absurd. That idea certainly isn't going to make a person want to clean up and have a meal. There are those who say the child was going to hell because he was a child born of adultery. Scripture gives absolutely no support to that belief. As you will recall, the exact opposite is what the Scripture supports. The soul who sinneth, uh, he shall die. Uh, the son shall not bear the guilt of the father. The father shall not bear the guilt of the son. David was able to say, I shall go to him, because David knew where both he and his infant son were going. He knew that their eternal future was with God. This was a man who wrote, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David, who said, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. David knew that at his death he would be going into the near presence of the Lord, and he also knew that this was the eternal home of his baby. I believe that is the truth. I don't believe it's the truth because it's warm and fuzzy and makes me feel good. I believe it's the truth because I believe it's true. I believe <laughs> truth because it's true. We're running out of time. A few weeks ago, a tragic thing happened in California. Pastor of a 
massive, charismatic church, had an assistant pastor, and the two- or three-year-old toddler died. The baby died. The toddler died. So the assistant pastor put out a prayer request that God would raise the baby back to life. And this nationally known, internationally known pastor tweets and blogs and puts out a prayer request to his church and their satellite churches. Let's pray for the resurrection of baby whatever her name was. I received the Christian Post, which is a news organization out of Dallas Theological Seminary, and, and they, they reveal this information. It hit the papers, hit the, uh, uh, the news media, and they continue to pray for two weeks while this baby's body lies in the morgue. The baby was not resurrected because of the prayers of these people. I want to say to you tonight, bad theology is bad. It's bad. It's bad before God. It's bad before one another. And it certainly is bad before a lost world. They look at that and say, these people are... I was going to say nuts, but crazy works too, okay? <laughs> these people are crazy. These people are nuts. These people are out of touch with reality. No, no, no. As Christians, we're in touch with reality. We're in touch with the truth. And so just because a church is big doesn't mean that it's biblical. Now, some people have contacted and lovingly rebuked this doctrinal error. I don't recall the pastor's name. It's not important. But it's important that we believe the Bible. It's important that we believe truth. It's important that we, we follow God's truth. And so tonight, if you're not sure that heaven is your home, you can believe the truth, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that is God's truth. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for our time to open up your word, to to answer questions and concerns that you have put upon the hearts of your people. Now, Lord, help us to grow in understanding. Help us to take your truth, ministering to one another, our family, church family, and then taking the gospel to the lost. So, Lord, help us to be committed to your truth, taking time every day to open, read, study, to dig into the word of God, to believe, to meditate, and then to share with family and friends and the lost of the things that we so graciously learn by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Bless now our time as we consider uh, giving ourselves and our hearts fully to you to give you glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May we stand together. Let's sing that chorus tonight. Now we would glorify the Lord by what we believe and by how we live. In my life, Lord, be